Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Maria Rodell, the author of Love, Nature, Magic, Shamanic Journeys into the Heart of My Garden. And Maria, it's, it's such a joy to visit with you. And this book, um, I'm telling more and more people, this is really uh, on my short list of, of books, really folks must read, in my opinion. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. And, and I've um, enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Likewise, likewise. Maria Riddell is an explorer in search of the mysteries of the universe. Author, artist, activist, and recovering CEO of Riddell Publishing. You may know from Men's Health Magazine, Prevention Magazine, and a num number of books. Uh, she serves on the board of the Rodale Institute and is also a former board co-chair. Throughout her career, she has advocated for the potential of organic regenerative farming to heal the damage wrought by pesticides and industrial agricultural practices. She is the author of Organic Manifesto and Scratch and is a secret children's book author, which we'll talk about. She was also featured in the documentary Kiss the Ground. Maria is a mother, grandmother, and crazy gardener who lives in Pennsylvania, right near where she was born. So, Maria, we, we're, you know, we, we have a number of authors um, on our podcast, a number of absolutely wonderful authors uh, working on really important topics. And that said, this particular book and, and what you've written and what you've shared has a, a really unusual, unique offering to our world. And I dare say one that's really needed in these times. And uh, without further ado, um, let me just ask you, what is this love nature magic? What's going on here? And, and what are you sharing with folks through this book? Um, well, First of all, thanks for noticing that it's different because, you know, I've read thousands of books and um, published hundreds of books. And I really did want to do something different and original. And I didn't even know what it was going to be. Um, but I have had the phrase love nature magic as, as a kind of a mantra for the last um, decade of my life. And when I stumbled on, and I had been doing shamanic journeying for that same decade, um, but when I stumbled on the um, ability to do a shamanic journey to talk to plants and nature being specifically those ones that really annoyed the hell out of me, that I wanted to understand better, um, it all came together. And that's that's how this book was born um, and happy to say I'm no longer as annoyed as often as I used to be. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And, and you really, you really share some of how that process has unfolded for you uh, mm -hmm. through the course of the book. 
And, you know, so in, in the book, right, the, even the structure of the book is really intriguing to me. You, you kind of kick it off with this, uh, well, three short vignettes, love, nature, magic, which, which are exquisite. And then you jump into this discussion around what is shamanism? And then you provide us two practices, one grounding and one opening sacred space. And then you go into these experiences with a variety of different beings, chapter by chapter beings like vulture and bat and mosquito and weather. And wow, it's, it's just this, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a trip in a, a jar, you know, in, 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 a, in a, the, to use the colloquial term, but what, what you're doing here with your shamanic journey in, in your garden is not actually with any sort of entheogenic hallucinogenic substance it's through your your drumming your breathing and your practices can you explain that to us and explain sort of the deep cultural traditions at work here yeah so um i you know i'm not opposed to people using plant medicine or taking drugs you know that, that's it's just not my thing um and i learned about journeying about 10 years ago and really all that was necessary was the sound of a drum, a rhythmic sound of a drum. And this is something that is authentic to cultures all around the world. So it's not like, oh, it's a Native American thing or, oh, it's you know, a South American thing. Um, it is a global um, practice that somehow everybody kind of figured out on their own. Um, and science has actually validated it. In the first study I, I mentioned in the book that, that compared people doing shamanic journeys to people on LSD versus people just listening to classical music. I mean, there is definitely an altered state of consciousness that you achieve. And um, that's similar but different to an LSD trip. Um, so it's real, it's real. It's not like a made up thing. It's something that, you know, is validated through science, um, but it's also something that requires um, caution and care and protection. That's why opening sacred space and closing sacred space is important because you're traveling, you know, you're, you're traveling to other realms, whether those realms are inside of you or outside of you, I don't know, but um, feels like outside. So, um, so I tried to structure the book, which I wrote sequentially. Everything in that book happened um, in the order in which I write it. Uh, I tried to structure it like a, like a journey um, with, the preparation that happens, opening sacred space, and then here's what it's like, and then, you know, the explanations around that. Yeah, yeah, and it, it really, the way you describe it, I imagine for, for some of us um, to be able to experience something like shamanic journeying might seem really exotic, really foreign, really unfamiliar, and the way you describe it, I, I, I think probably 
you know, might make it even more accessible to a lot of us um, who, who might otherwise not feel like it's very accessible. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really um, like to do for myself, but also for others is, you know, demystify things, you know, yes, I'm in search of the mystery of, of the universe, but I am in search of it because I want to figure out what it is and share it and get over, you know, find the answers. So, so this is something that anybody can do, you know, with, with, a, you know, a little bit of um, homework and, and maybe some guidance, but you can also do it on your own. And I tell people how to do it sort of, mm. Mm. <laughs> but I'm not a shaman. <laughs> That's yeah. Which you also point out in the book. And by the way, for our audience who are watching the video, I'm, I'm showing the book here on screen, which is so beautiful. And this is published by our friends at uh, Chelsea green publishing. Um, and so I want to, I want to sort of dive into, um, a, a few of the beings that, that you connect with. And what's also amazing to me, in addition to the, the, the revelation and invitation into the practices of shamanic journeying, you're also sharing the very intimate exchanges that you experience with, with myriad creatures and you're, 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 you're sort of carrying back for the rest of us these these insights, in some cases, these requests, often these very wise proclamations coming from these other realms, these other beings. And another reason I consider this to be such an important book is you're actually bringing uh, back a number of really important messages for these times that we're that we're living in. And, and one of the messages comes from the the vulture. And uh, there's the theme of the phoenix, the theme of the detritivores, which is so important in regenerative agriculture and ecosystem stewardship. And yeah, vulture, wow. Can you tell us a bit about the experience you had with vulture? That's one of the more, um, you know, complicated journeys I took because, you know, uh, my first experience journeying to vulture was like the first and only time I got scared and, you know, sat up and said, you know, oh, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> and, you know, I did, there was this kind of giant black dragon man and who scared me. So, um, so I forgot about it. And then as I was started writing this book, I kept getting, senses that um you know messages and this is how this is what happens when you start aligning yourself with um with the universe properly you know things nature starts talking to you and and um giving you nudges and sometimes you know punches in the face too but um <laughs> uh i was like oh i should probably go back and and talk to Vulture and see what Vulture has to say. And, um, you know, I think the most important, the most important thing that they said is that, you know, you're, you're not really your body. I mean, your, bo your body's important, but you're the energy that's around your body. And that lasts after, after your body is, 
decomposed and the vultures eat it, you know, <laughs> which they and vultures only eat dead things, you know, um, but they also eat dead energy. And um, that, you know, our job here as humans is to sort of, um, you know, lighten our, our energy through love and feel, um, you know, enhance our energy through loving others and being joyful and letting go of the heaviness that is so much a part of being human. Um, so, I mean, it's important to take care of our bodies and to be in our bodies, but also to not let our bodies define who we are and what our purpose is in life. Yeah, yeah, so so beautifully put. And at the very end, the crescendo of the book, there, there's these uh, just, tremendous it's it's like you're you're preaching uh these tremendous statements and i i actually earmarked a couple to share but we'll we'll save that till a little later on in our discussion um yeah this emphasis on on love and joy really is is one of the threads in the book that resonates with me and, and it resonates so beautifully with the various messages you're receiving from these different realms of intelligence yeah and I think that's a really important message for these times because, you know, we're so stressed and worried about climate change and, you know, politics and economic inequity. And, you know, there's so many things we could like be constantly freaked out about. Um, but ultimately what changes those things is when we change our own beings and our own hearts and and approach the world in a more loving way and then it's like a ripple things start changing all around us love that ripple indeed indeed well one of the other chapters on mosquito i when i started <laughs> all the hard ones <laughs> yeah you, you, well maybe, maybe they're, they're, i i enjoyed all of them in in marked up annotated the heck out of the margins of the book throughout and you know i read a lot of books um each year often preparing for podcast interviews and i'll and i'll admit you know i picked up a skill in graduate school which is sort of speed skimming and i i read a lot of what each person writes but in the case of your book i took the the slow read approach and read it from the very uh first page to the very last page sequentially and um, and I read a lot of it as I, I think I sent you a photo out in the woods with my sweetheart a few weeks ago, we needed to get out of town and get into nature. And, and so, yeah, there, there's so many chapters that just, wow, it, like the whole thing is just this one wow after the next, like a bouquet of flowers. Um, and when I started it, I was thinking to myself in part, probably cause they were buzzing around me a little bit, boy, I wonder if mosquitoes in here. And by the way, like having been involved in permaculture and regenerative uh, land stewardship for 30 years now, I've, it comes up again and again, what's the purpose of mosquito? And so there's a chapter on mosquito and um, in it, you, you share quite a bit of uh, some really beautiful uh, insights for us. Yeah, yeah, so um, 
again, Mosquito was a comp, one of my complicated, one of the few beings that I did two journeys for because the first one, um, th they yelled at me. <laughs> <laughs> for being, you know, a little bit lazy and half-assed about the whole thing. <laughs> and, you know, I was scared. I was scared. So, um, so I did a little bit more research because, you know, the, we think about mosquitoes as like something we just want to like get rid of and, and um, you know, they're annoying and they're cause disease. And when I, the combination of doing the research and my second journey, I was really able to understand how, first of all, mosquitoes are essential to the environment. Like yeah. if we got rid of all the mosquitoes, we'd be killing ourselves. It's a suicide mission. And the reason is because, you know, the larvae are, they, first of all, they eat um, algae and keep the water clean. And then their food for all the, you know, the insects and amphibians that, you know, the whole food chain yeah. is like reliant on the mosquito larvae. And the reason they carry disease is because we have diseases, <laughs> you know, we're the vector of the disease. So it's not that, you know, mosquitoes, you know, they're just taking a little blood here and there. And, you know, <laughs> but the, and it's only the female mosquitoes that bite and the female mosquitoes that live to have a second meal that have the disease because they've picked it up from their first bite from a human. So, um, you know, I really started to understand that um, we need mosquitoes. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of people in our lives that are annoying, but that we need them. <laughs> like, just because somebody annoys us doesn't mean we should kill them. <laughs> So, so it's really about learning to coexist and do all the things to protect ourselves and, you know, to not leave standing water around and, you know, all those things, but um, really appreciating and, and living in harmony with those things that um, uh, seem like evil is is so important because they're not evil you know and they deserve to they deserve to live just in fact they will live longer than us yeah. they're like 99 uh, 290 million years old and they're going to be here after long after we're gone so yeah. <laughs> that's that's so that's so full of insight and you know, one of the one of the things you bring forward in that chapter on mosquito is how the mother mosquito, right, needs the blood from another creature to have the iron and whatever else she needs to have her right. offspring. And so curiously enough, we humans, when mosquito gets a little food from our bodies, through our blood, one could say are directly supporting keeping our our waterways riparian zones ponds right. clean yeah. healthy 
That's uh, a different perspective. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little blood donation for the environment. <laughs> if only it weren't so itchy. <laughs> you know, there's there's anti-itch creams that really work. So just make sure to have them. <laughs> yeah. Love that. I love that. And I guess the, the handful of chapters I wrote in my notes to mention, I realize are all sort of in the quote unquote deeper end as you progress through. And and I'm going to extemporaneously weave back to the uh, mugwort, mm -hmm. uh, which really is the, the, the starting point of this, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Can you share with us about mugwort? Yeah, so mug, I, I blame it all on mugwort. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was um, trying to eradicate mugwort from my yard, all I knew was that it was a, considered a very invasive plant and extremely hard to get rid of, you know, to the point of people, you know, recommending Roundup, which I was like, you know, I briefly considered, which was like shocking to me, you know, because I had in my mind this picture of what a garden should be and what an environment should be. And mugwort just wasn't in that picture at all. And if I could just interject, just for some of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Roundup, which is the brand name for glyphosate, right? Like an extremely right. toxic uh, herbicide. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Or herbicide. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I was standing in my garden with my hoary hoary knife, you know, ready to like murder another mound of mugwort, <laughs> that's when I, I kind of, I stood up and I looked down and I could, I could literally see this little plant going like, time out, you know, stop, take a breath. Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And um, I had coincidentally been planning to do a, a shamanic journey um, that night with a, a group of women who I, I journey with and with the shaman who um, was doing these sessions during the pandemic to kind of um, relieve boredom. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the first time I said, I'm going to try journeying to Mugwort and see what Mugwort has to say. And, you know, it was like not a very um, visually stimulating or, you know, verbally, you know, it was complicated journey. It was very simple. And, you know, she said, you know, why are you always trying to kill me? You know, like, did you ever think about asking nicely and and like you're never going to get rid of us because plants rule the world and what happens when you're journeying is like simple things like that suddenly you suddenly feel it and you understand it in your whole soul your whole being understands that and what also happens is like okay that was the end of the journey but when you when you're talking to a nature being like that whether it's mosquito or mugwort, you're opening a door to communication and the door stays open even when the journey is done, even when you close sacred space. So what started to happen and which actually is still happening post publication of the book is like, I'm constantly getting 
information and messages about how important and powerful and magical and wonderful mugwort is. And in fact, you know, since I published the book, I've come across many, you know, references to mugwort as like the mother of all plants, you know, and the most, you know, the first plant um, that's important. And there's, you know, spells and all kinds of things. And it's also a, the sacred plant, like the way sage is sacred to the Native Americans. Um, mugwort is sacred to the Pennsylvania Dutch and the Germans who are kind of my indigenous roots. So um, that's where the magic comes in. <laughs> you know, starts with like love, which is like listening and caring what other people think and what other things, what their perspective is. And, you know, nature is all around us. And then when you put those two things together, that's when the magic starts to happen. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I love this. Well, there's a chapter that is not really plant or animal, and it's a chapter on weather. Mm -hmm. And boy, I've got underlines and marks and stars throughout that entire chapter. I mean, it's so packed with yeah. insight, wisdom. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about weather and, and what's going on in your communication with weather? Well, you know, like I said, once you start opening the door to talking to nature, things start kind of reaching out to you and, and saying, you know, come on, like, come talk to me. And like, it didn't even occur to me that you could talk to weather, <laughs> that weather was a thing, you know, a single thing that you could have a conversation with, you know? <laughs> so a lot of times when I'm starting these journeys, I'm like, okay, let's try it and see what happens. And, um, you know, right away I got, you know, kind of pulled up into space to look down on the planet. And you see, you know, you know, you've seen the pictures, the swirling clouds and all this stuff. And um, what, you know, what the immediate realization is that like, you can't see people. And weather was like, we don't really care about people. Like we care about, it's our job to keep the planet alive. And you're just like, you're like, you know, ants underground. We can't even, we can't even see you when we don't really care about you. And um, so that was really like humbling. And um, it made me realize that like, as far as weather is concerned, we're a little bit disposable to them. And um, so that's why we have, we have to work on the behalf of weather to take care of the earth so that they don't sweep us away in a, a flood or a fire or, you know, some kind of catastrophe. Yeah. There, there's, it seems there's almost an opportunity for more alliance making somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, since I've written the book, boy, weather is getting louder and louder with its kind of warnings to us that we have to pay attention. 
no doubt about it. No doubt yeah. about it. I'm getting this this intuitive impulse to remind folks um, that I'm speaking with Maria Rodell and. Although the Grateful Dead just played here in Boulder, Colorado two weeks ago, we didn't just like meet each other at a Dead concert. I happen to like the Grateful Dead's music. Uh, in fact, Maria, you're a retired CEO, right? Like you speak spreadsheets, you know financial statements, you've had many, many, many employees and divisions and departments and responsibility, and uh, you're from the corporate world. And so I think one of the other things that makes this book and what you're so beautifully and, and courageously, I might add, sharing with the world at large is a very intimate, sacred set of experiences you're having in the sanctuary, the privacy of your own yard and garden. And wow, like I can only imagine the decision making process you must have gone through and you speak to it a little bit in the book about holy smokes, like, do I actually really want to like step out on the limb of sharing this with the world? And it's so brave. And it's another reason why it's so needed. Because frankly, if you look at systems, systems change, and, and some of the pathologies at work in our global systems, there's so much decision making concentrated in the executives of the world who maybe aren't doing this kind of thing nearly enough, I would say. And can you maybe give us a glimpse into, you know, A, what was that sort of decision-making process like for you? And, and B, maybe speak to that contrast a bit and, and see, like, I'm, I'm really interested to hear, like, have you gotten any really strange, like, feedback and, and comments from folks who are like, wow, what? <laughs> um, so, at to answer your last question, no, I mean, a few people have said, oh, there were some cringy parts and like, nobody's mm -hmm. said exactly which parts are cringy. So I don't know, like, okay, what's, what was really oversharing or what wasn't? Um, but I will say that what my experience as a CEO, and not just a CEO of any company, but a CEO of a health and wellness company that had a lot of like data and information about people's desires and you know like you know I, I could tell you the top 10 things people search for on men's health and women's health online and you know that's really revealing because you know? <laughs> people don't think you know anybody's paying attention, but it's like, okay, that tells you a lot about what people really care about and what they think about. And, and um, so I, you know, I, from the topic of what we were publishing, I was very curious and trying to understand humans and human nature and the things we talk about, the things we don't talk about, the, you know, the secrets, the, you know, whether it's sex or, you know, you know, health issues, mental health issues. But then I also, you know, I had so many employees and direct reports and peers in the industry. And first of all, everybody's human. <laughs> I met, you know, a lot of famous people who are all human. <laughs> and um, 
a lot of people succeed and they're not actually as smart as they seem. Um, there's a lot of um, posing and skills that people have to cover up what they know and what they don't know. And so like I became really obsessed with wanting to tell the truth. And um, when I sold the company, I was like, oh, finally, I can tell the truth. You know, and when you're also, when you're a CEO, you're surrounded by like corporate communications and PR people who are like, well, don't say this, you know, or, oh, you know, you want to always want that to put a good face on things. And sometimes, you know, you can't. So um, I just, it was like a big exhale when I sold the company. Um, and, you know, I'm a woman in this business. So there was all that to contend with as well. You know, and I, I will say that the few negative reactions, very few negative reactions I've gotten from the book tend to be more on the like mansplaining side of things. So. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. What a joy that must be. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. Huh. I see you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which maybe maybe in a gesture of appreciation and understanding, that's an attempt to to connect and relate and something along those lines. But yeah, I can imagine that, that doesn't necessarily come off very well. Yeah, but I mean, I, I I hope it comes across in the book that you know I really respect and admire you know men and and you know I think the answer is not you know matriarchy versus patriarchy, but partnership, and that's what nature teaches, and you know. What intrigued me the most, I think, was how gender fluid nature really is and how that's a, a really important lesson for all of us. Yeah, yeah. I, I love how you you weave that into the into the book and the discussion. You know, you you pointed out a handful of insights through the course of these reflections of these journeys. And one of them is the survival of the happiest. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious because in, in, in sort of neo-Darwinian, whatever, socioeconomics, we hear this idea of the survival of the fittest. What, do you, what is the survival of the happiest all about? That sounds way better. Well, first of all, the other thing to know is like, I'm an obsessive reader of science, you know, magazines and science books. So, you know, like I, you know, and in fact, you know, the survival of the fittest, which is attributed to Darwin, was um, was not his really his main point. His main point was um, adaptability. You know, the ability to adapt is what's the most important tool to have to, sur to survive. Um, but, the, the, you know, the other thing to know about Darwin is that he came, he, he came to prominence at a time, it was what I would call the height of the male sort of hubris view of the world. Um, I mean, he was a great, you know, researcher and, you know, like, but he was of his time and like he was afraid of religion and which is why it took him so long to publish what he published. Um, you know, because religion was such a, a huge factor 
in society at that time, which was, you know, very patriarchal religion. Um, but actually what's happening now, and I'm not the only one to say this. So, you know, I've read books, you know, by a lot of modern day nature scientists and researchers that, um, you know, Darwin and his compatriots were seeing the world almost through their own lens as like warrior people, <laughs> you know, competing for resources and there, there was never going to be enough. And, and so we have to like fight, you know, and go in right away fighting. And that's what it means to be, you know, strong and powerful. But if you look at nature real and the adapt adaptability of nature, um, you know, the species that survive and thrive are the ones that are really like happy in where they are and collaborating. There's so much partnership and collaboration within and among species that, you know, it's not competition at all. It's collaboration. Now, having said that, everything eats. <laughs> so like, there's going to be blood. <laughs> There's going to be blood, you know, even with, you know, vegans eating carrots. I mean, carrots have little souls and, and you know, consciousness. So, um, so we all need to eat, which means there needs to be some kind of blood and death in the, in the system. But yeah. it's when we approach it with um, collaboration, it creates more um, abundance and happiness in the environment and everybody's happy for, you know, as long as they're alive yeah. Yeah. until they die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so beautiful. It, it reminds me of how we describe the lives of the regenerative cows at work around the world, a yeah. life of joy and, and happiness up until a sudden end one day. And the one, um, the one bad day theory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. And let me let me just um, take a minute to remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with Maria Rodell, the author of Love, Nature, Magic. And I want to take a moment to uh, mention some of the links where you can find uh, Maria and connect with her and her work. That includes MariaRodell.com. Um, we've got several uh, Instagram and uh, other uh, link links, including Maria's Substack, that we'll include in the show notes uh, so that you can do some additional exploring there if you'd like. Of course, we also want to give a quick shout out to our several partners and sponsors who make the Why on Earth Community podcast series happen, along with the rest of our organization's Regeneration Renaissance work across the three categories of culture, ecology, and economy. And this includes, first and foremost, Chelsea Green Publishing. Um, and if you'd like, you can go to the whyonearth.org website, uh, go to our sponsors and partners page, click on the Chelsea Green logo, and enjoy a 35% discount on this book and all their other uh, books and audiobook offerings if you'd like. So a huge shout out to Chelsea Green. Um, also, a big thanks to Purium Organic Superfoods, uh, Earth Hero Sustainable Products, uh, Soilworks Biodynamic Blends for your garden, 
Uh, waylay waters, regeneratively and biodynamically grown hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts for your well-being. And uh, last but not least, of course, Earth Coast Productions, who does all of our podcast post-production work in our technical and video production work at the Wine Earth community. And finally, a very special thanks to our ambassadors, our growing global network of ambassadors, doing all kinds of beautiful work inside organizations and communities worldwide. And uh, especially those who have joined our monthly giving program, if you haven't yet and you'd like to, you can go to whyonearth.org, click on the donator support button and set it up at whatever level works well for you on a monthly basis. And if you'd like to join at the $33 or greater level, we will, as a thank you, send you a, a monthly uh, jar of the Waylay Waters soaking salts for your well-being and also a way to support some of the regenerative and biodynamic farms we collaborate with. And so, Maria, uh, before diving back in, and I, and I want to uh, get to another kind of flip side to the coin here uh, with our human nature, um, is there anything that you want to mention in terms of links and resources that I didn't uh, include just now, just, just to get that on the air if we want? Um, no, I mean, I think my Substack is a good, my Substack is called Life Unfiltered. And that's a good way to keep up with what I'm doing. Um, and uh, there's a lot of resources at the, the back of the book, Love Nature Magic, if you're interested in more learning more about shamanism or the books that I read to figure out what everything meant. <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah, it's great. It's really true. You do, you do provide a lot of references uh, throughout the book and at the, at the end there. And so I want to ask this question, you know, in addition to the opportunity, it seems that many of us have right now to reorient ourselves to nature, to the intelligence that we can open up and be receptive to hearing and, and receiving from. There's this other insight you share, which is, which is that we're all capable of becoming fascists. And in graduate school, I actually did a deep dive on what happened in the Weimar Republic in Germany and in Europe around the 20s and 30s, leading to the horrors of the Second World War and the Holocaust. And so this, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, especially as we're seeing so many of our democratic systems worldwide under major threat currently. And, and Germany was a democratic system leading up to the takeover of the Nazi regime and, and those uh, terrible atrocities that occurred. And, so what do you mean when you say we are all capable of becoming fascists? Well, a lot of it has to do with messaging and, you know, how people communicate with us. And, you know, I think I, ta I talked about this specifically in the Lanternfly chapter, which is a, um, a newly, quote, invasive species from Asia that has like taken over, taken over Pennsylvania. And um, like literally you will see signs, you know, if you see them, kill them. If you mm -hmm. see them, kill them. I mean, I've had like environmentalists, you know, really smart environmentalists be like, we've got to kill, you know, kill as many as you can. And like, they're teaching children, you know, if you see them step on them, you know, kill them. And, you know, it was while I was like following that direction, you know, to kill them 
that I started, you know, like I was stomping on them. And I was like, wait a minute. This is like those videos you see of like skinheads, you know, like what the hell am I doing? This is wrong. And, um, and I think, you know, I think the same thing happens with just invasive plants in general, like in the, so, you know, you can be a liberal, a Democrat and be against invasive species. And like, I've got to go out and like, you know, I, I mean, I know for a fact that a lot of conservation groups and parks use Roundup, which is terribly toxic, to get rid of invasive species. Right. And it's like, hold hold on, time out. <laughs> First of all, most of these species were brought here by humans to, for some purpose, because they had some value that people thought they would bring. And two, like, maybe nature knows what it's doing. <laughs> Yeah. In fact, I think nature knows more about what it's doing than we do. And so the idea of like killing something to get rid of it because we don't want it and we don't like it is because we have this romantic idea in our heads about how it should be, you know, so there should be no gay people, no Jews, no, you know, black people, whatever. I mean, that is just so stupid <laughs> but we get caught up in it because the people around us are caught up in it and so you know a lot of what um i think is just really important is like taking a step back you know taking a deep breath and realizing that every single thing has value every single being every single plant every single insect and it's got a purpose for existing um so that means we should respect it and be kind and you know look at our own behavior and change that rather than trying to like eliminate something out there that we don't like so i mean i i, I had that epiphany when i was behaving in a fascist manner and i am like as liberal as they come so wow this is this is so pertinent for some of the land use decisions being made around here where i am currently the greater boulder county region of colorado and yeah we we've got a big controversy underway around um herbicides being sprayed from air, aircraft and um you know it's it's funny to me not funny it's striking to me that Many of us are operating with this this false notion of a pristine ecosystem. There's a lot of protected open space around here, thank goodness. Um, and my gosh, like so many of the indigenous sort of pre-modern industrial colonial uh, ecosystems around the world were very intensively managed by people, by humans, and and stewarded in in reciprocity and collaboration and Moreover, in this particular part of the world, um, much of what was going on in terms of the cycles through the seasons involved millions of buffalo and millions of elk and all kinds of other creatures that are frankly not just cruising through the landscape right now. And so, yeah, this 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 notion that there's a, a pure right. to maintain is a very dangerous notion. And meanwhile, a lot of these 
quote unquote invasives. And I'll mention for our audio audience that you had you were using your fingers to make signs in quotes uh, sarcastically a bit earlier when you're talking about killing and, and eradicating. A lot of these quote unquote invasive species are have a very unique specific role to stabilize soil that's been disrupted and to um, get that uh, situation stabilized so that many other diverse crops can come back through the stages of succession to get back to a super diverse polyculture, which it seems nature likes to make happen over right. time. You know, we, out here we have Mullen and, and Curly Dock and several others that are doing that in, in large quantities right now. So yeah, it, it's it's vis-a-vis the greater sort of ecosystem restoration and regeneration, agriculture and and land use, things that we're mobilizing and thank goodness, hopefully are, are gonna be scaling up in a considerable way in these next several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's There's an interesting little call invitation to to humility here that i'm hearing maria that it sounds like is really important right yeah i think you know a good example um from science is that you know susan samard's book finding the mother tree you know where you know you had uh men forest foresters who were like oh you know we're gonna like cut everything down and just plant, you know, one type of tree and, you know, it's, that's going to be fine. And that, and we'll grow, you know, we'll make paper out of that or we'll make, you know, furniture out of that. Um, But she was, you know, by really paying attention and understanding, she, she was able to scientifically prove that actually a diverse amount of trees, like a diverse bunch of species of trees actually collaborated with each other, helped each other, that they needed each other, you know, so it wasn't just like one species, it was like three, four, five. And I think like we don't know hardly anything about how nature actually really works. And like I said before, I mean, plants have been on this planet a lot longer than we have and they'll be here long after we're gone. So um, I think, you know, when in doubt, it's always better to um, trust that they know what they're doing <laughs> and get out of their way. Yeah, so beautiful. Yeah, such a powerful, such a powerful insight. Wow. And and at the at the end of the book, uh, there's this crescendo. May, may I may I read just a little to uh, quote you? Sure. You say, instead of building walls, we need to figure out how to build better bridges and boats. Instead of focusing on killing weeds, we need to plant more trees. Instead of dreaming of an unrealistic romanticized past where everything was quote unquote pure, which it never really was, we need to dream a new dream where diversity is purely wonderful and appreciated as an important indicator of health and vitality. Instead of worshiping at the altars of success, fame, and wealth, we need to celebrate truth, kindness, and love. And I gotta say, I think probably my most very favorite thing about this book, and there's a lot in there that I will count as my favorite, is this continual return to love 
the importance of love and, and the invitation to deepen into our understanding and cultivation of love. Mm-hmm. And so I want to maybe land on that note <laughs> as we wrap up this portion of our, our podcast interview. We'll do a little behind the scenes for our ambassador network afterward, but can you tell us a bit about tell us a bit about love and why, you know, like love, nature, magic, why love? Well, again, you know, love has been so misunderstood and, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm thinking about like when my grandparents, you know, raised my father, um, you know, there was a whole, all, all this parenting advice at the time, which was like, you know, don't hug your kids, you know, don't, don't like show them love, you know, you're going to make them tough. You got to like, you know, and like that was the scientific expertise of the time. And my parents' generation who were raised that way, you know, mostly, um, you know, had lifelong trauma as a result of that, that they passed on to us. And, um, you know, so, and there's a lot of talk, you know, these days of like, um, you know, healing the trauma. And, And I think a lot of it is been sort of a lack of love, a misunderstanding of love, you know, both in how we parent, you know, we don't get any guidebook when you have a baby, you know, they don't give you <laughs> like the 10 steps to how to love your child. You know, they, <laughs> they give you like free pampers and a, you know, can of formula. Um, <laughs> I've had three kids and, uh, and so it's something like really as a whole society, we're still learning about what it means to love and how to love. And in, in many cultures, like love is still very dangerous, you know, in, in the Middle Eastern cultures and, and um, even, um, you know, in some parts of Asia, it's, it's like, you know, marriage is, is a, um, marriage is a, uh, a negotiation, not a, a love match. So, um, but the more, you know, you, I delve into it, the more I realize that, um, that's where we need to do the scientific research is on love and what it really is and how important it is and um, what what kind of energy it really is because you know maybe it's the dark matter of the universe. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love how you throw that in there. Yeah. Who knows? You know, we don't know. That's the mystery. <laughs> which is apparently 86% of everything we can detect out there and distribute exactly. patterns water does in our, uh, our brain tissue. Yeah. So it's the most important thing. Um, it's the most mm-hmm. important thing, all kinds of love, the all kinds of love, not just, you know, parental love or romantic love or, you know, animal pet love. <laughs> Truly, yeah. And speaking as a fellow parent, I will say that the few pages of the Parents' Creed you include at the end is is exquisite. And check that out too, everybody, especially if your parents are soon to be parents. I've got a friend 
uh, friends who are expecting soon. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that they hear about that too. Yeah, that that's that's one of my favorite parts of the book, and you know something I wrote long before I wrote the book, and I think it's one of the most important pieces mm. of of the whole book. <laughs> Well, Maria, it is it is such a joy to have this discussion with you about your book, Love, Nature, Magic, Shamanic Journeys into the Heart of My Garden. And yes, and you're welcome and thank you. And I really encourage everybody to get a copy and read this book. This one's a, a life changer and it I think will likely open up some doors for you. Um, possibly doors you didn't even imagine were uh, so nearby. And uh, we'll wrap up and do our little behind the scenes segment for our ambassador network. Um, and But before doing so, Maria, uh, I wanna just give you the floor in case there's anything else you'd like to say or share to conclude. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, you know, really, reading the book carefully and, and sharing your, your thoughts about it and, and, you know, having me on here um, because, you know, it's like the whole, the whole publishing industry has changed <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's really um, about word of mouth and, um, and, you know, sp spreading the word. And, you know, my hope for, writing this book was to like reach as many people as possible so that we can kind of charge the change that we need to see in the world in a, in a way that is um, both gentle and extremely powerful. And that's what, that's what love nature magic is about is it's about like, creating the world that we all really want to live in um, and that we all long for. Um, and it's not impossible. It's not out of our reach. We can do it. We've got this. <laughs> Beautiful. Right at our fingertips. Yeah. Love it. yeah thank well, thank you. you so much, Maria. Thank you so thank much. You. Bye. Bye. <laughs> The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WhyOnEarth, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.